Hey, dear listener, Anthony here. Before we hop into the show, I wanted to let you know about an incredible new resource we just released, The Five Rules of Investing. Dan and I are huge advocates of modeling the behaviors of the people who have done what you hope to do. And who better to model when it comes to investing than legendary investors like Warren Buffett, Howard Marks, and Ray Dalio? This free ebook breaks down the simple time-tested strategies of billionaire real estate investors that you can use to take your investing to the next level. So head over to InvictusMultifamily.com and grab your ebook today. All right, now let's hop into the show. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for uh, buckling up, for taking this ride with us. Now let's get, let's get crazy. Dan, <laughs> what, do you, what do you want to talk about today? Uh, probably, I mean, probably real estate, uh, probably like we can't just jump to the real estate. I know there's going to be 15 minutes of completely unrelated crap that everyone's got to just sit through. And, and then at some point probably touch on some real estate stuff. I I like to think the crap is, uh, is what the people come for. I think they do. Honestly, yeah, you guys are masochists. Just like, <laughs> like, yeah, some weird stuff. Let's see how badly these guys do. This <laughs> Let's time. see how badly you you want that real estate knowledge. Let's see if you're willing <laughs> to sit through. Uh, we're just testing you at this point. Um, how much of this can you listen to? Not much to get to. I actually have cotton swabs in good, my ear. What was it? I actually have cotton swabs in my ear. I can't oh. stand to listen oh. to this. <laughs> 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 But you know, today we're going to talk about uh, numbers and how numbers don't lie. No, but you just lost the entire audience. Like numbers, number. Oh God, no, okay. no, no. We're okay, going to talk about fraud. We're going to talk scams. about fraud, conspiracy, um, deceit, deceit, <laughs> conceit, receipts. No, no, you're losing them again. Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> started rhyming. You know, went down a rhyming well. What are we talking uh, about though? We're going to talk about how numbers don't lie, but you can make them say whatever you want. What and the hell does that mean? Well, besides being a really catchy phrase that I have copyrighted, um, he hasn't. So feel free to steal it, just so you know. No, actually, it is copyrighted technically because it was in our book, Passive Investing Made Simple, and I had our editor. I thought mm. I had stolen it from somebody else. It turns out it is an original. And so look at that. it is, yeah, don't you steal that. Anyways, what does it mean? Numbers don't lie, but I can make them say whatever I want. So numbers say whatever the, whatever you want them to say, right? Like it's how you lie through statistics and how you structure graphs and like how you can mislead or misrepresent just by how you present Cherry things. picking data. Cherry picking. Right. You want to find some comps. You could just pick the best ones if you want that aren't you know, the top five really aren't going to be a real true representation of what the comps are, right? Mm-hmm. So I think cherry picking data, that's one. That's a big one. Uh, we, we don't need to get into it yet. I'm just trying to define what it is. Maybe like not pulling certain levers that should be pulled. Or not pulling them hard enough. Yeah, or just know? ignoring those levers. Yeah, and so <laughs> what this means is in a lot of cases, you as, say, an LP, and even as just an operator, um, let's say you're not raising capital from anybody, you're just going out there buying your own deals. You need to be really aware when you're looking at numbers that are presented from some other entity, like what are the ways that those can be uh, manipulated? So maybe that's coming from a broker. Those numbers are always touched up, mm-hmm. polished, so to speak. As an LP looking at you know your general partner's underwriting or the, the marketing package, what are the things that they might, eh, they might, put a put a shine on to make it look a little bit better or different than reality. So mm-hmm. we're going to talk through some of those things. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. And also claims that um, operators might make that maybe don't tell the whole story or tell a, um, 
imply a different story than is, is actually the case. So first thing I noted here, which is something that we've gotten on our soapbox about before, so I don't want to spend too much time, is if you're an LP and you're looking at investing into a deal with an operator, uh, one thing we've seen quite a bit, which really kind of grinds our gears, is operators claiming that their LP interests in other deals uh, count towards their 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 doors, so to speak. So there's their there's, track record. Yeah, there's you know some some newer people out there that may or may not know any better, um, who say, okay, I've invested fifty grand in this deal that's got five hundred units. I've 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 invested you know fifty grand in this deal as an LP over here that's got another five hundred units, and I'm currently operating my own portfolio to have investors in it of maybe a hundred units. And I'm claiming I've got 1100 when in reality you're operating a hundred units, not 1100. We see quite a bit of that. And that one just kind of, kind of irks me because I'm not sure if it's nefarious. I think it's usually not. It's just people are trying to find out how they can kind of um, present themselves in the most uh, positive looking manner possible, not realizing that that is implying that they've got a lot more experience than they do. Yeah, that's a really big one. We did a previous episode on this about assets under management specifically. It's like, I think this episode's something like the biggest lie operators tell. And it's tricky because there is, there are formal definitions, but there is no like universally agreed upon definition of like, this is how you calculate your assets under management. You know, do you go based off of purchase price, like what you paid for it? Or do you go based off of what you think the current valuation would be? You know, like there's a, there's a gray area because there's gray area. People will push the limits of what's maybe technically true or what the, the LP or the other person on the other side is likely to infer based off of what they're hearing. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a that's a really big one. When I when I hear about assets under management, one of the questions I like to just follow up with is like, OK, what's that actually mean? Can you break that down and like what's your act? What's your actual involvement with those assets? Are you leasing them are you managing the manager or do you have a manager that manages the manager and the further removed you get from those day-to-day operations the more you as the other person on the other side can go okay you're not really the manager yeah so something to keep in mind yeah that's that's very true one one thing that i see a lot and this is both brokers with their um you know their marketing packages but it's also gps this is a big one is market rent the idea of this is market rent there's a lot of ways that one can be manipulated like you you alluded to okay if we take the top five comps well that's going to give you maybe a skewed perception but what if those aren't even technically comps i see this one a lot where it's like you see the the market rent that the broker's sharing and you you look at the building that they're using and it's like 10 miles away and it's a different class entirely in a different neighborhood. And you're like, well, yeah, they're getting 1300 over there, but this is not the same. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something you just got to be aware of. Like, where are the incentives here? Now, if you're an LP looking at a, a deal presented to you by an operator, there's a lot more alignment there than there is with an operator getting a pitch deck from a broker who is getting paid by the seller and is doing everything he can to get as good of a deal to, uh, for that seller as possible. And then after that deal sold, no skin in the game. So that's why we always say, okay, the broker take, gives you something to take with a grain of salt. If an operator gives you something, you know, you still have to ask questions, but there should be more alignment there. They've got some skin in the game. So if they're lying to you, they're in some way, shape or form, probably lying to themselves as well. 
about <coughs> how good a thing is. But um, yeah, at that point, <coughs> I think that would that starts getting close to, to fraud, right? Like with a broker, you expect the salesman to have a little bit of uh, um, I don't know optimism, ex- extreme optimism. But when a GP is, yeah, when a GP is trying <laughs> to bring an LP, there there is a bit of a fiduciary responsibility, and I think misrepresenting data like that, I think starts to get into that gray area, depending on like the intentions behind it. That's always mm-hmm. a hard part. Like, do they, are they inexperienced or are they ignorance or ignorance? yeah. Or malice. Yeah. yeah. Something else I've noticed, which <clears throat> sometimes could be, again, it just kind of grinds my gears. Uh, this in the same way that, you know, the, the guy with a bunch of LP exposure is claiming that all those doors are assets under management. This is one that I see quite a bit, and I feel like it's just kind of cringy, and it's combined years of experience. Uh, so if you see an hundred years combined experience, yeah. So if you see an operating team that's got you know a couple guys involved, like let's say me and Anthony, for example, if I took my years of experience and his years of experience and added them up and said, okay, as a team we have X years of combined experience, I see that frequently with really new groups who are trying to do everything they can to appear as experienced as possible. And fun story, I, th- I, I, I was looking at uh, old Matt Donofrio's website. Oh, yeah. Uh, a while, this was a while ago when that whole court thing was going on, and he had that on his website. Did he? Combined years really? experience. I saw that. I was like, oh, that's that's why I almost kind of feel like that, that might be a bit of a red flag sometimes. But yeah. I think more often than not, it's just like the new guy who's trying really hard not to look brand new which i get it but still not not a good look yeah that one it's just silly because it doesn't mean anything well that one yeah i mean you could have a team of a hundred and <laughs> yeah, what's black rocks come everybody's got like, one year of experience now you have a hundred years of experience years it's black rock is that probably what if you add all the they have like sixty thousand employees or something they, that that'd be a lot of experience <laughs> yeah, it gets ridiculous they have fast. a millennia of experience uh, but yeah if you're a new operator skip that and if you're an lp and you see that in a deck just ignore it it doesn't mean anything look at the guys who are doing the the most important jobs and ask them how much experience they have individually Mm -hmm. so anywho that's a good one i I wouldn't have thought of that what else you got any others yeah got a few um i mean this one's kind of general but providing the providing overly optimistic pro formas and downplaying slash completely ignoring the downside. So lack of sensitivity testing or just having really out there expectations about what the next five, seven, however many years the whole period is, is going to look like. It could be uh, cap rate assumptions. That's the big one. I don't want to sound like a broken record. You've heard yeah. us harp on that quite a that's bit. A really, that's a really obvious one at this point. But yeah. Market rents, like we were talking about before. Um, making sure the comps are comps. One, um, one big one on that is uh, refinances. So yeah. it's so it's so easy to juice IRRs when you put in a refinance. And just depending on how optimistic, even like a few basis points on the interest rate or on the cap rate at time of refinance can <laughs> really skew numbers and it can bring up the... The average cash on cash a lot like that's a that's a really easy way to to juice expectations and one of the things that we do and i think this is a good um i don't know industry standard that people should do is provide a base case without refinances in there and then a stretch goal that does have the refinance just so you can look and say okay what what's the impact that a refinance actually has on this model 
And when you have those two numbers next to each other, it's usually going to be like 200, 300 basis points difference in a lot of cases just by inserting that refinance and maybe um, some other underwriting expectations. But, you know, if you're if you're underwriting with like a 15, 16 percent IRR with a refinance in there, then in reality, if you don't execute that refinance, it's probably closer to like a 12 or 13. That changes the dynamics quite a lot. So I think that's just one really easy way to make a deal look way better than it is. And the problem with it is that you don't know what the world's going to look like in a two to three year window. The debt yeah. uh, market is going to maybe change and look at, like it does now. So if you were buying in 2020, 2021, and now you have to refinance, you, you did not predict that we were going to have a doubling of interest rates. You, did, you, you probably didn't underwrite for that. And so whatever your performer was, it probably is wrong now. So yeah. that one really gets me a lot because I see a lot of deals where the only reason it looks good is because the refinance and the assumptions around it. Yeah, exactly. And, and to your point, nobody would have thought that rates would more than double that quickly. We certainly never did. And so we never bothered to underwrite for uh, that exact scenario. But we also wanted to make sure that if we just had to sit on a property for five, seven years and never do a refi, that it still made sense. Regardless of what the catalyst is, we want to make sure that if we just can never do it, it still is worth doing. So good practice to do. Make sure your operator's doing it. If not, ask them to. And do the same for yourself. Like if you're an operator looking at a deal and you're like, you know, you're doing your four four quadrants and you're doing your underwriting, like don't don't sell yourself a, a bill of goods. Just like it's so easy to start manipulating numbers and like yeah. tweaking them just a little bit, make it look a little bit better. But then you're getting you're skewing further and further away from objective reality. So don't yeah. don't lie to yourself. As Mr. Professor Feynman said, the famed physicist, we must never lie to ourselves and also, or no, he said, we must never fool ourselves. And also, you are the easiest one to fool. Mm-hmm. So there you go. I agree. What else you got? Um, let's see. This one's a little, it's kind of similar to the first one, but a little bit different. <clears throat> um, and this would be an individual on an operating team who's got a very um, concentrated slash specific role. And they act or present themselves as if they have more experience. So um, I guess the perfect example here would be like a capital raiser who is implying that they have more experience on the operations side, um, on the debt side, on the underwriting side, you know, what have you. There's a ton of people out there that are really great at raising capital but they aren't really the most technically minded with understanding all the nuances of the, of the underwriting and, and answering a ton of questions there. They, they may have little to no experience with the property management side and the operations, which is all perfectly fine. Um, but there, I think there's a good number of people out there who are really good at a very specific part of the GP team, but may or may not be implying that they have more experience than they actually do. So not quite sure how to package that in a more concise way, but yeah, this one is interesting, not so much from the experience side, but uh, from the who is actually in charge side. Sometimes you see large GP groups where a lot of partners will come together. You'll have this group over here, this group, this group, this group. I saw a group recently that had 15 different entities in the GP side. Too many. And there's way too many. And the question I have, I'm like, okay, who's actually running the show? Who's the captain? Who's making the decisions? Know. 
at a certain point, you start to wonder, because <laughs> like, that's a lot of chefs in the kitchen. But I think that's a really important question to ask before you invest in any deals. Like, okay, who's the actual decision maker here? Because if you're investing through a capital raiser, I think it's important to know that they probably don't actually have meaningful control in the deal. Mm-hmm. They're not the ones working with the, the property managers day to day. They're not doing the asset management. And so in a lot of ways, the information that they're going to receive is dependent on what the GP, the controlling GP, allows them to see. And that might change your opinion about whether or not you want to invest through that capital raiser or if it would just be better to go direct to whoever the controlling GP is and you know get to know them and create a relationship there. Now, I'm not saying don't go through capital raisers. I'm just saying understand that there is a difference, that there's there's a little bit of limitation in terms of what the capital raisers actually have access to. And I see this all the time where I, I, I see a deal, they come across and the person presents it as though they are the operating partner. Mm-hmm. And as I dig and I'm like, okay, so who else are these people? Who are these other people? And it's like, oh, this guy's doing the asset management. I was like, oh, I thought you were doing that. He's like, no, no, no. I'm like, oh, okay. That's important because the asset management is what makes the money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So that's, that's the guy that I, I, I probably want to talk to and know like how much experience and wisdom does he have? hundred percent. And uh, again, nothing wrong with just doing the capital raising or like a specific part, but just be overly transparent about that. Like, I'm here to show you this opportunity. If you want more, this other guy's who you talk to, right? Yep. Uh, do you have anything else? Uh, I mean, we could go so deep into all those underwriting assumptions in we terms of... One really big one is around expenses. I think that one can be a really easy one to to manipulate in your favor. Um, yeah, you can put whatever the hell you want. Yeah, yeah, because it's all like, <laughs> oh, yeah, we think we can operate at, at this number. And it's like, okay, can you? <laughs> that, I find that to be a really easy, because everybody can look at the revenue and the market rent and calculate pretty easily and quickly. Like, okay, is that realistic? The expenses are a little bit harder one because that one's a little bit more dependent on operator capacity and competency. And so that one's a little bit harder if the guy's like, yeah, we can operate this at 42%. You might look at it and be like, oh, yeah, that seems reasonable. Mm-hmm. But maybe they can't. Maybe, and maybe their other port, like the rest of their portfolio is actually operating at 47%, 48%. But the 42 doesn't seem unreasonable. But it changes the numbers quite drastically. Yeah. And it's also so nuanced from property to property, from location to location. Mm-hmm. So, like, the OPEX, uh, the operating expenses and the expense ratio – in our neck of the woods is going to be a little bit different than uh, somewhere down south where, you know, the heating cost isn't as big of a factor. Um, and the insurance, co- insurance costs can vary widely. I've been hearing a lot lately about insurance in like Florida. And so there's so many different things that are going to influence what the operating expenses ought to be that it's probably going to be incredibly tough for an LP, especially if it's an LP investing in various parts of the country to be able to spot, oh, that makes sense or that doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we're very niched down here in our area, and, and I've seen quite a bit of variability between even the assets that we have in our area that are all pretty similar. But, you know, uh, yes, a, a building that's, you know, a historic brownstone over here and a historic brownstone over here, one of them's got new windows, more insulation, new plumbing, new electrical. This one doesn't. Really similar looking assets, but the OPEX are going to be completely different given those, those components up. So that's, that's one that you need to be aware of. Uh, it's also one that I'd be surprised if most LPs can really um, investigate effectively on their own, unfortunately. So mm-hmm. that's why you got to bet on the jockey, not the horse. Yeah. I think, 
I think that's a really big one. And generally when it comes to expenses, I think that's one to look at with a bit more of a fine tooth comb of like, okay, can these operators really do that? Because it's very, very easy to like make NOI look good by just bringing down the op, like the OPEX just a little bit by a couple percentage. And it might not like stand out all that drastically, but I think that's one really easy way to, to, to manipulate numbers because as they say, a dollar, a dollar saved is worth more than a dollar earned because the dollar of additional revenue is always on a margin, right? So if we have a 50% expense ratio, every dollar of additional uh, rent is actually only 50 cents to the NOI. Right. But if we can cut a dollar in expenses, that's a full dollar to NOI. So every dollar cut from expenses is twice as valuable as dollar to the revenue. And so from an operations like underwriting perspective, you, you can see how like a little can go a really long way really quick down there. Yeah. And then on that one, too, this is just kind of coming to me now. Um, there could be a very good reason, too, that OPEX is substantially lower than you might think it should be. For example, we're looking at implementing a lot of um, uh, tax incentives for 2024. And, and I don't know if you had a chance to look at the numbers I shot the numbers this morning. Get, the numbers get crazy real quickly. Yeah. But we don't project those typically. No, we don't. Right. But, you know, if, you know, someone were to put a deal in front of me where I know, like, usually we're kind of mid-40s on OPEX. Yep. And, and I think the one I shot over today was either 38 or 36%, something like that. Yeah. If I saw that, I'd be like, whoa, what the hell? Yeah. But it's all coming from... The property taxes. Property taxes. Right. And those incentives coming through. And so like, okay, yeah, then I can see why that's the case and it makes sense. So if something like this seems off, you can always ask. And if you get a good answer, then it might be good. Mm-hmm. So cool. any others? Uh, any other see. lies? Any other numbers? That I we- guess one thing is the, 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 the debt and the um, um, effectively communicating or, or, not, or, or omitting the risk profile on a deal. And there was a lot of guys over the last several years that opted for variable rate debt um, and never bothered to underwrite themselves, or even if they did, they didn't present the sensitivity testing to their LPs that showed, here's what happens as rates tick up, if they were to tick up, right? We've talked about this a bunch. You could fix your debt, go back to like 2019, you could fix your debt at like three and a half percent for five, seven years, whatever. Or you could get like 3.2 or 3.0 and have that be variable, right? I don't think any of those guys presented what it would look like if those rates doubled. And that's just omission. It's not like you're really massaging the numbers, but you're just kind of omitting some of the sensitivity testing that you ought to be doing and showing. Mm-hmm. So that was yeah. a good one. And Hopefully that, everybody learned the lesson though. Yeah, I think this has been a very interesting period of time where we see, oh yeah, interest rates can double inside of a year. They that historically can. haven't. That, that, that is possible. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> so uh, history never repeats itself, but it always tends to rhyme. And uh, sometimes it's just completely off-tuned. <laughs> and in and, and, uh, the parlance of jazz, there is no such thing as a wrong note, depending on what the next note is. Mm. So Mm-mm. we'll see what the next note is in the economy that makes this, this period of time... Uh, work or not work (laughs) if i've learned anything in the last three years it's that anything is possible yes we've had like a three-year string of just black swans do you guys remember that remember how like think of 2019 the idea of even 2020 january 2020 the idea of a pandemic unfathomable locked in your house unfathomable by the government and yet here we are on the (laughs) other side would have guessed yeah even even as it was happening i was like this isn't happening how is this real life yeah but anyways, all right, there, there you go, guys and gals. That's how the numbers lie to you. So 
put that polygraph on those numbers, ask them the hard questions, put them under the, the hot lights, ask them where they were on the night of the 13th, June, 1984. That was my birthday. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you know where I was. Where were you? Um, bed, chilling with my mom. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Any, any parting words of wisdom? Stupidity? Oh, me? <laughs> yeah, he's hanging around. Just chilling. <laughs> All right, that'll do it for us, guys. We're just gonna I was trying to keep hanging out the, here. The, the, the meme, my Beetlejuice guy. It's like all over oh. Instagram. Huh? I don't know what that is. You haven't seen that? No, that was hilarious. Oh, I'll send it to you. Okay, <laughs> cool. You if you guys, if you guys uh, want this meme, shoot Dan a text. I think and everyone else has seen it. You're just out of the loop. I'm slow. I'm not cool. I'm out of the loop. But that'll do it for us. Uh, we'll see you inside the loop next week or next episode whatever bye Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of Multifamily Investing Made Simple. If you enjoyed the show, could you do us a massive favor? Head over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and review. Your feedback, it means the world to us as it helps us grow and spread the word about multifamily investing. And don't forget, sharing is caring. So fire this episode over to any friends or family who you think could benefit from learning all about multifamily investing. Thanks, guys. We appreciate every single one of you, and we'll see you on the next show.